This is Lead Minister Nathan Pelahowski of RSCC. I just want to welcome you to the RSCC podcast. Here's something I want you to know. I want you to know that you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says that you matter when he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Today I hope this message challenges you and encourages you to take your next faith step. Good morning. As Nathan said, my name is Don Thomason. Uh, Appreciate Nathan giving me the opportunity to share with you today. Um, been around this congregation for quite a number of years, from back at the time that we were on Main Street, and that this was a hayfield, and there was a barn that sat right about over here. You know, there's a couple factors that I think have contributed to the growth and the stability of our congregation here, and the ability to to have these facilities and. Those factors are, are one, I think it's been the, uh, the quality of the men who have served as elders and deacons and the, the way they've kept the church on track spiritually and focused on ministry and mission, and we've got a good group of leaders now who are following in those footsteps. I think one of the other major items has been the, the quality and the longevity of service of the ministers that we've had, the preaching ministers in particular. Us youth ministers have come and gone quite a bit, but in the pl- past 50 plus years, if my count's right, Nathan's the fourth preaching minister that we've had in that time. And that, uh, I think that says a lot about the congregation here, and it says a lot about those men and the quality of uh, preaching and teaching they've given us. And again, I think Nathan's doing a great job in following in those footsteps and feeding us. And I appreciate his preaching, and I know I grow and learn from it as well. But I do have one comment about Nathan's preaching. You know, every now and then, he tries to foist upon us the erroneous idea, the erroneous opinion of who the greatest basketball player is of all time. Now, we're, uh, you know, he never seems to back that up with a lot of details. Uh, show that one. Like, you know, if we were going to look at this objectively, you know, we'd have to look at several different players and we'd have to look at statistics and, and different things. And it would, you know, it was going to come down to a matter of opinion of who that is. And we're not going down the rabbit hole today of who the greatest of all time or the GOAT the NBA is, because frankly, I really don't care about the NBA. But my point is, and what I want you to think about, our passage today in Colossians is where Paul makes the case for Jesus to be the greatest of all time, for Jesus, Jesus to be supreme Uh, preeminent to some of the wording that is in there. That is what we're looking at today, that Jesus is the greatest of all time. Let's look at Colossians. We're going to begin in the 15th chapter and go through uh, the 23rd verse. It says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and in which I, Paul, have become a servant. Paul here, again, is making that case for Jesus to be supreme, for him to have the supremacy. Other versions might use the word preeminent. Uh, Webster's defines supreme as the highest in rank or authority, the highest in degree or quality. It is the ultimate, the final. Jesus is all of those things. For the preeminent is having paramount rank uh, in dignity or importance. And, and in these verses, the language is that Jesus is supreme for all time. You know, if we were going to debate who was the greatest, whether basketball player, football, baseball, whatever, you know, in my mind, in those things, we would have to really only determine who is the greatest in their era. You know, the rules have changed, especially take basketball. You know, the free throw line used to be at three feet. And originally, the original rules, it was two 15-minute halves. You know, there's no three-point line, no shot clock. Uh, you know, a lot of things have changed over the years. And so the greatest might be only for their era. But Paul is saying that Jesus is the greatest. He is the most supreme. He is the preeminent. He is above everything else for all time. In Ephesians, the first chapter, Paul is, has a very similar line of thought. And he says about Jesus being above everything, not only in the present age, but in the age to come. Jesus is supreme above everything, preeminent above everything for all time. Paul makes his case in three areas to say Jesus is supreme. He's supreme in his relationship with the Father, his supreme in his relationship in terms of creation, and he is supreme in the church. We're gonna look at those three things briefly here. Paul says that Christ is the image of the invisible God. The amplified versions of that verse says that Jesus is the exact living image, the central manifestation of the unseen God. In other words, he's the visible representation of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, the writer there says that he is the exact representation of the Father. You know, people who want to make counterfeit money, you know, they've, they've gotten pretty good at it. But an expert can look at that and find a particular detail here and there 
that it's not exact, it's a counterfeit. That Jesus is the original. He is exactly like the Father. In John, the first chapter, John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Now, at the church in Colossae, there was the beginning of some false teaching of uh, a heresy saying that Jesus was not divine, that he was part of creation. Now, he was a higher Uh, spiritually higher in the order of creation than the average person, but he wasn't equal to the Father. And there are cults today who teach the same thing. Uh, Jehovah's Witness would be an example. You know, and some would say that, you know, Jesus wasn't God, but he was a good moral teacher. He's a good example for us to follow, and his teachings are good for us to follow. You know, that's really not an option for us. We lived here through the 80s, moved back to Oklahoma for a short period of time uh, when I served in a church there as a youth minister. And we were only a couple blocks away from a disciples seminary. And I still needed six hours to finish one of my master's degrees at uh, CCU. And so I took a couple classes there. And I knew it was going to be different, that there was going to be a different approach to Scripture. In fact, you know, I was told I never had a class with her, but the theology, the Christian theology professor there told her, it was a woman who told her class that her personal uh, preference in worshiping a god was to worship the Egyptian goddess Isis. So you can see where some of this might be coming from. So I took a class on the writings of Paul. And we looked at Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, because that was really all he considered that was written by Paul. But he had an approach that basically, this is what Paul wrote, this is what it says, what it means, and from that point, it was pretty straightforward and uh, in my opinion, not too far off the mark. Some of the things I didn't agree with, but it, you know, it was, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, to find out what, where it really stood. It never happened that semester. But it was, since it was a pretty decent class, I thought, well, I'm gonna take the second class with him, and it was in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's where the other shoe fell. This professor, his area of expertise was studying the Last Supper and how the church practiced the Lord's Supper in the first uh, century. And one of his opening remarks was that Jesus probably never had a last meal with his disciples, and if he did, what's recorded in the Bible is certainly not what would have taken place. It's not the words that Jesus would have shared with them. He would not have been able to uh, share the things he did with them because he was giving significance to a future event. And a mere man would not be able to do that. You know, I I don't understand how a person could spend their entire academic career, their professional career, studying something that they thought was made up. You know, this purport, you know. But anyway, 
we can't, you know, that's not an option for us. If Jesus was a mere man, then he's not worth following. And his teachings aren't worth what we think they are. Now, if we just look at this logically, Jesus is either who he said he was, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. Now, let's say just for discussion's sake this morning, um, that uh, Jesus' words aren't true. Well, let me, let me back up. Let's look at this, look at something else first. There are numerous places in scripture where it is very clear that Jesus is claiming to be God. That his own words, he is stating, I am God. I am equal with the Father. In the Gospel of John, he makes several um, statements that are called I am statements, where uh, at one point in discussion with the Pharisees, he, he says, before Abraham was, I am, which is a reference back to what God told Moses. When Moses asked, who shall I tell the Israelites is sending me? God says, I am that I am. It's a very clear reference that Jesus was saying he was equal with the Father, that he was God. In each of the other I am statements of I am the bread of life, the light of the world, uh, the vine, the good shepherd, all of those were as well very bold comments of Jesus saying, I am God. And it's clear from the Pharisees' reactions in each of those cases that they got that point. They knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be God, and it, you know, it sent him over the edge. When he said that before Abraham was, I am, Scripture says they picked up stones, and they were ready to stone him, to kill him, right then and there. So it's very clear, Jesus claims to be God. The people who were hearing him got that message. They knew what he was saying. But again... For the sake of discussion, let's say that Jesus' claims are false. If they were false, his claim to be God, if it's not true, then we have two options. Jesus either knows what he's saying is false, or he's delusional, thinking that it's true when it's not. So if he knows they're not true, he's a liar. Do we consider liars good moral teachers? You know, if someone is lying to us, we don't trust them. We don't follow them. We don't believe in what they're telling us. If Jesus didn't know that his claim to be God wasn't true, then there's, you know, something not right up here. We might have several words uh, to describe, you know, having a screw loose, lunatic, crazy, delusional, few fries short of a happy meal, whatever phrase you want to put on there, that's what we would think about a person who's claimed to be God when we knew they weren't. We would not consider them, again, a good moral teacher, someone that we're going to follow what they say. You know, if someone today got on social media, whatever uh, platform you want to um, pick, and claim to be God, you can imagine how Twitter or Facebook or whatever is gonna blow up and the criticism they're gonna get. They're not going to be lauded as a good moral teacher. So Jesus is either God, he's Lord, who he says he is, 
He's a liar or a lunatic. The option of saying, well, he's just a good moral teacher. He's a good man. We ought to follow his teaching, but he wasn't God. That is not an option that we have. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. He, our passage uh, here in verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. He wasn't part God. He was all God. He was, the fullness of God dwelled in him as a human being. Now, that, there's another concept that's hard for us sometimes to get our minds wrapped around. But Jesus is the genuine thing. He is God. There is nothing higher in authority, power, magnificent. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He is above everything else because he is equal with the Father. Jesus is also supreme because of his relationship to creation. Paul here is very clearly saying that Jesus created all things. All things were created by him. They were created for him. He's not part of creation. He's creator. He is above creation. And part of the false teaching in, in uh, Colossae, it was just beginning to develop at this time, but part of it was said that Jesus um, was part of God's creation. They claimed, you know, the, the thinking was at that time, it's called dualism, where Things that are spiritual, they are pure spiritual and they're good. Things that are material or physical are evil and they can't come together. They can't be part of the same thing. And that's where the concept of Jesus being fully man and fully God, they said, no, that didn't fit into their way of thinking. So they came up with a convoluted theory that since God, and, and God is spirit, and God is pure goodness, he can't create anything physical because physical's evil. And he can't create what is evil. And rather than recognizing that God created a perfect world that was good until we messed it up, they come up with the idea, well, that God then created a spiritual being who, who that spiritual be being created another spiritual being and it went all the way down the line to where you got to the point where one of those spiritual beings was far enough removed from God that he could create the physical world. And that was Jesus. Now, I don't spend too much brain power trying to figure out that logic. It's, it's, it's off base, obviously. Because Paul is saying no, Jesus is equal to God, and he is the creator. He uses a term, firstborn, that maybe at first glance, someone, and even people do take today, people look at that and say, oh, well, there's proof that Jesus was created. He was the firstborn of creation. He was the first thing God created. But that is not what the word firstborn means. It can be used to mean first in order, but it is usually used to mean first in terms of importance, first in terms of um, having the supremacy, being over everything else. And we can see from Scripture that that's how it's used in several other places. In Exodus, the fourth chapter, the nation of Israel is referred to the, as the firstborn nation. But they weren't the first nation that was formed, but they were the most important 
nation in terms of God's plans for bringing the Messiah, for bringing Christ into the world. In Psalm 89, King David is referred to as the firstborn king of Israel. But he's not firstborn in his family. He's the youngest in the family physically. He's not the first king of Israel. Saul was the first king. But Jesus, or excuse me, but David was first born in that he was the most important king in Israel's history, and the most important king in bringing the Messiah into the world as um, Jesus was descended through the line of David. And in the same way, Jesus is first born in importance. He is first born in that he is supreme, he is preeminent as the creator. Everything was created by him and for him. He is supreme as the creator. There's nothing in creation or outside of creation greater than Jesus. Jesus is also supreme and preeminent because he is the head of the church. You know, I mentioned that over the years we've had very quality leadership in our elders, our deacons, our ministers, but our leadership here is not the final authority. Jesus is. Jesus is the head of the church. And it, all of us, at whatever role we play in this congregation, are to submit to the head of the church, Jesus. Submit to his authority, his leadership, his word. You know, I was recently in a meeting where the beginning line of an opening prayer went this way. It said, gracious God, Adonai, Elohim, Allah, great spirit and divine presence through all of the holy and sacred names by which you are known. That was the opening of this prayer. The prayer was closed asking for it to be answered through the intercession of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton and St. Joseph. Nowhere in that prayer was Jesus mentioned or Christ? Neither of those names were used. But Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is who we pray to. He and he alone is the only access that we have to God the Father. He is supreme. Paul here again uses the term firstborn to refer to Jesus, saying Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Another example of how the words used, not meaning the very first in line, but the first in importance. There are several people in the Old Testament that were raised from the dead. We have recorded that Jesus raised from the dead at least three different people. So he wasn't the first to come back from the dead but he's the first who remained alive after coming back. All those other people who rose from the dead at some other point, they died. Jesus is still alive. His resurrection is the most important because it conquers death. It gives us that hope of an eternal resurrection. It is his resurrection that establishes the church as the new creation. Jesus is supreme over the physical world because he created it. Jesus is supreme over the spiritual world, the new creation, 
because again, he created it. Jesus, excuse me, Paul is making the case for Jesus to be the greatest of all time. No one, nothing is higher than him. He is supreme by being equal to God the Father and having the fullness of the Father in him. He is supreme by his role in creation of the physical world as well as creation of the church. He is preeminent above everything else. What does the fact that Jesus is preeminent, that he is supreme in all these areas, what does it mean for us? To begin with, it means that Jesus has the answers that we need in life. As the supreme savior, if we're in our efforts to lead a supreme life in following him, he has the answers that we need. He has the direction that we need. Uh, Toby Mack has a song out. It's been out for, I think, a little over a year. It's become one of my current favorites uh, called Promised Land. And one of the verses there says, even though the questions change, the answers always stay the same. Maybe someday I'll understand. And we've all said that, or we've all had it said to us when those are puzzling things in life, those things that happen to us that we don't understand. Maybe someday we will, thinking about you know, that day in heaven, that then we're gonna understand everything. But I think we sell ourselves short, and we sell God short when we take that approach, that we're not going to understand until heaven. And there are some things that we won't understand until then. And there are some things that I think even when we get to heaven, we won't understand. Because we're still going to be finite. And to grasp the infinite mind of God, even in heaven, some of that's going to be beyond us. But there are things we can understand here. There is more that we can understand here than we uh, give ourselves credit for because we don't start in the right place, that we don't take the answers that scripture gives us. As creator, God gives us some answers, some keys, some clues to make sense of this world, and the answers begin in accepting God and his word as the authority for right and wrong, for the supreme authority, accepting God's position there. You know, um, as creator, he not only has the right and the authority to make the rules, but he also has the best perspective, the best position to give us direction on how to live the best life possible here and how to understand that life. And there's no other source that we can begin with or use at all to properly understand this world to determine right from wrong, to determine our purpose in life, our meaning. You know, we hear a lot today <clears throat> about um, misinformation and trying to control what information is given uh, to people. But who determines what's information and what's misinformation? You know, and if we don't have the right starting point, we cannot hope to arrive at the right conclusion. You know, forming our view of the world and on life has to be based on the fact that God is creator. 
You know, that would help us begin to sort some things out in life. The, the barrage of information that hits us, some of it is right and some of it, much of it is wrong. But understanding God as creator helps us sort some of that out. You know, if we accepted Genesis 1, that God created male and female, that would solve a lot of confusion in some people's minds about what a man is and what a woman is and how many genders there are, you know? We can begin to understand that. And it's not just about gender confusion. It's about the value that we have as human beings. Our world devalues human life. The acceptance of abortion as being okay is one of the greatest things that undermines the value of all human life. Satan does everything he can, I think, to destroy our value as human beings and to mar, in our minds at least, the fact that we are created in God's image. That is another key that we have to hold on to. You know, there are many factions today that claim, you know, their life matters, you know, that it's better or, you know, it's been discounted in the past. And, and maybe there are groups that, and there probably are certain groups that their lives have been devalued more than others throughout history. But the only way to determine how life matters is to see it as created in the image of God. Anything else devalues all of our lives and all lives are created in God's image. And if we treated other people that way, whether individually or as a society, that would raise the value of human life and people would understand that their life matters. Not because they say so, not because we say so, but because God says they are created in his image. You know, there's a lot of evil and suffering in our world. And people, you know, how do we make sense of that in our world? Paul gives us a clue here to begin to understand that part of our world. Again, it begins with establishing Jesus as the preeminent, supreme creator, the one at the highest point of importance in the universe, the one who created everything, whether seen or unseen. He created things in earth and on heaven. He came to show us the, what the exact representation of God is. He shows us what God is like. You know, that's not the primary reason Jesus came to this earth. Why did the supreme being of the universe enter the world as a human being? To die on the cross. And why did he die on the cross? To reconcile us to God. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and he was pleased that through the preeminent Christ to reconcile all things to him, to reconcile the world. In other words, to restore the world, to make things right. Jesus died not just to restore our lives, but all of creation that has been damaged due to sin. See, the answer, you know, why doesn't God do something about injustice or suffering in our world? The answer is, he has done something. 
Jesus' death on the cross was the beginning of God reconciling the world, God restoring, God making things right. And when we see that, other pieces of life that are confusing, troubling, begin to fall into place. Again, we, we may not always like how things go in life. We, we don't. You know, life is hard. Life stinks sometimes. But God is good. And God has demonstrated his goodness. God has demonstrated his love for us through Jesus and his death on the cross. God is good, and we hold on to that fact when all of life is falling apart around us. You know, but it's more than having uh, clever answers to serious questions about life. It comes down to our relationship to the supreme being of the universe. Paul says in verse 22 that Jesus came that we might be holy in God's sight, it would be pure, it would be clean, without blemish, he said, without any defect. That's how God views us, that we are free from accusation. Think about that. You know, people can nitpick all kinds of things about our life, maybe at work, in your home, but standing before God, we are free from any accusation because the supreme God, the preeminent Christ, died on the cross to reconcile us to him. Jesus has the answers that we need in life. And he came that we would have a relationship with him. Therefore, he is worthy of our worship. And we focus on who he is, what he's done in creation, and what he has done at the cross. He is worthy of our devotion, our obedience, because he is supreme. He is the greatest of all time. You think just a moment as we wrap up, what is the ultimate goal of our salvation? Is it for us to go to heaven? Well, that's a nice side effect, a nice benefit, I should say, of, of what we receive in this. But that's not the ultimate goal. That makes it about us. But if Jesus, if he is preeminent, if he is supreme, that means everything is about him. He is above everything else. Now, we're grateful that through God's mercy that we can look forward to heaven and continuing that relationship. And that's why we should work to live a supreme life here. But the goal of that life is for Jesus to be glorified. See, our salvation, even our salvation, is not about us. It's about Jesus. It's about glorifying Jesus in our life. As the preeminent, the supreme one, all things are done for him, through him, and to him. Do we really believe that? Do we really live that way? Is he really preeminent? You know, we're here today, right? We're taking time to worshiping him. We're showing how important God is to us. But I think many times Jesus is only prominent in our life. 
He's part of the priorities and goals that we have in our life. But we have to make him supreme, preeminent. Everything is about him and glorifying him in our life. You know, if you choose the wrong athlete to be the greatest of all time, eh, the consequences aren't too severe for that. You might get some ridicule or get into a debate. But if you choose the wrong person to follow in life, that is more significant. The stakes are higher when we're making a decision that affects our eternity. Living our best life means putting Jesus as the supreme savior at the head of our life, following his direction, his purpose, and living for his benefit and his glory, not our own. Who's supreme? Who is preeminent in your life over everything in your life? Paul says Jesus holds that place in his life. Does it in yours? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your giving your son to be our savior. And that as the supreme and preeminent being in the universe, you were willing to take on our form and to come to this world to die for us, to reconcile us, to restore us, to bring us back into a right relationship with you. Father, help us to make Christ supreme in our lives and that others would see Christ living in us and be drawn to him, that they too would have the hope and the promise of eternal life that we have in him. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. It's been great hanging out with you guys today. I hope that message challenges you and encourages you today. We would love to have you on campus sometime at one of our services at 8.30 or 10.45 on Sunday. Or to find out more information about RSEC, you can always go to the RSEC Family app. Or follow us on any social media platform at RSEC Family. Most of all, remember, you matter. Not because I say you matter, but because God says you matter. Now go and be blessed.